Hi there. Thank you for hanging out with me. I'm Sarah Wendell, and this is episode number 452 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. My guest this week is Anna Lee Huber. The latest book in her Lady Darby series is out this week, and she is my guest to talk all about it. Now, if you haven't read the book yet, do not worry. There are no spoilers. And if you haven't read the series, this might tempt you to try it. It's a great series because we're going to talk a lot about history. A Wicked Conceit, which is the newest book, has several uh, relevant parallels to life right now. There's a cholera pandemic happening in the book, and the characters aren't sure how it's spreading or how to protect themselves. And there's a popular play based on a book that everyone is talking about, which includes characters that are thinly disguised versions of Lady Darby and Gage, which I liken to ye oldie social media. Basically, history has totally gone through the mimeograph machine. Remember those? Deep breath. And the way in which history parallels itself is is just fascinating. Please note that during our conversation, we talk briefly about Lady Darby's first marriage, which was abusive, and about trauma response and memory, but we don't go into specifics. I want to send a very special thank you to Brittany Black, Anna's publicist at Berkeley, and to Angela James for some of the questions this week. I will have information about where you can find this book and where you can find Annalie Huber in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And after the podcast episode interview, interview part, the interview part, after that's done, I not only have a bad joke, but I want to share my favorite quote from this book because I really enjoyed it. This episode is brought to you in part by Pretty Litter. Now, you may have just heard my cat and assistant audio engineer, Wilbur, jumping around while I try to record. He is very gracious and allows me to use his room, which I thought was my office, but is not. The only downside to sharing my office or his room with him is that his litter box is right there. It's about two and a half feet away from me. But thanks to Pretty Litter, this is no problem at all. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in a dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. Yeah. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store or that massively heavy bag to carry up from the car, and shipping is free. But above all else, here is why Pretty Litter is a pet parent's hero. It is a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in a conventional litter. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use promo code TRASHY for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code TRASHY for 20% off. Prettylitter.com, promo code TRASHY. Hello to our Patreon members. Hello. If you have supported the show with a monthly pledge, you are making sure that every episode is accessible to everyone, and I deeply, deeply appreciate your support. I also want to say hello to Jory, our, one of our newest Patreon members. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you would like to support the show, join the community, help me come up with questions for future episodes, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 a month, and every pledge is deeply, deeply appreciated. This episode is also brought to you in part by Apostrophe, a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Prescription acne treatment really works, but it it can be hard to get. You have to take time off work to see a doctor. You have to sit in line at the pharmacy for your medications until apostrophe. Apostrophe makes it easy to see a board-certified dermatologist online. You'll get treated immediately, and your medications are delivered to your home. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about skin concerns and medical history, then snap a few selfies, and your dermatologist will get back to you with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. The best part is that Apostrophe offers topical and oral medications so you can treat your acne from the inside out and the outside in. Apostrophe treats acne and they can also help you hit your other skincare goals like reducing redness and even dark spots. I tried Apostrophe to address adult acne because as I have said, getting a gray hair and a pimple on the same day is not cool. I didn't even need to make an appointment. I didn't even need to get up from the chair I was sitting in. And not only was the apostrophe website extremely easy to use, but when I entered my location, the doctor that would be designing my treatment plan was a local dermatologist I'd already seen for a different issue. Same dude. The prescription arrived super quickly, and my skin has already calmed down substantially. 
Get $15 off your first visit with a board-certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash smart or use our code SMART. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash smart and click begin visit. Then use code SMART at sign up and you get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash smart and use that code SMART to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. I had so much fun doing this interview and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for a terrible, terrible joke. And as I said, my favorite quote from this book. But for now, let's get started on with my conversation with Anna Lee Huber. I am Anna Lee Huber and I write historical mysteries. I write two series. The first one is the Lady Derby Mysteries that are set in 1830s, um, Scotland, England, Ireland. Um, and the heroine is a portrait artist with a macabre past. And then I write the Verity Kent mysteries, um, which are set in post-World War I England. And she was a spy for the British during the war. And then I also write the Gothic myth series. And I'm also part of the anthology, The Deadly Hours with Susanna Kearsley, C.S. Harris, and Christine Trent. So you do a few things. Yes, just, just a, a few. few. Just, a, just a few <laughs> deadlines here and there. Wow. Well, congratulations on a wicked conceit. Thank you. I'm so excited about this one. <laughs> I have to tell you, I have such strong place memories of, of the Lady Darby series because ed- everyone had been telling me, you need to read them, you need to read them, you need to read them. I'm like, okay. So a couple of years ago, I was in Japan with my family. And we're, you know, they have these wonderful hotel rooms in Japan where your whole family can be in the hotel room, but everyone has their oh, own wow. bed, like That's there's a double nice. bed and then two twins. So my kids were asleep and I was not asleep because jet lag is brutal. And I had pulled the covers up over my head and I was reading one, one after the other, after the other, after the other. So all I can think of when I think of the early part of the series is being under a duvet with jet lag. <laughs> just completely content that I, I did not care that I wasn't sleeping because I was following this woman around as she solved a lot of murders. I it's, love that. It, it, it's, it's one of my favorite like sensory reading memories. Um, <laughs> is this release a little different than prior books? Does it ever get old now that you've published so much or is it always like, yes? <laughs> I, I would say it never gets old. That's for sure. Um, I would say you get more used to it. I think the first one is such a high, even the first few and you're nervous and you're like, you want everything to be perfect and all these things. And then I think as you, as you, you know, have had multiple releases, you realize there's always hiccups. And so it's, but it's still exciting. Definitely. And, you know, this book, you know, definitely is different. Um, I, I, it just so happens this is my fourth release since the pandemic and we shut everything down. So I'm kind of old pro at this new way of promoting. <laughs> um, but it's the first book that I wrote during the pandemic. So, cause I was in the middle of writing it when everything shut down and my kids back at home learning and, you know, so it was an adjustment. I'm proud of it just because it was kind of like, oh my gosh, I, I did it. I finished it, even though, you know, that kind of thing. In some ways, I feel like I was lucky because I was already working at home. Yeah. I was already all these certain things. Me too. But in other ways, it's it was, you know, that creative brain. It was really, you know, when you when your job is writing and being creative, you know, like there are moments when you're in the zone and it's awesome and it's comforting and it's, you know, cathartic, but there's other times when it's your job and yes. you just have to make yourself do it. And with, you know, the pandemic, it just added another level of difficulty in forcing yourself to go there. You know, ah. I mean, there was a lot of times I had to just shut everything off and everything out and like, you know, just put blinders up and headphones on just to make myself go there. Yep. So, yeah. And on one hand, it's, it can be very hard for me. I know like I have five different playlists of music and different headphones that have varying levels of noise cancellation. But at the same time, when you really get in that zone, I imagine you're being able to be like, and now I'm with hang, hanging out with Verity. Now I will <laughs> hang out with Lady Darby. Now I am in Scotland. Yes, there's cholera, but it's better than here right now. That escaping is must be as as powerful for you as the writer as it is for the reader, which is really definitely, lovely. Definitely. Yeah, there there definitely is an escape element to writing in the past. 
when your present is so kind of crummy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, some of the questions I have for you come from your publicist, Brittany Black, who is amazing. And in my experience as a, as a podcaster, um, publicists sometimes have the most interesting questions because they have to shape how the book is pitched to the media. So they think about books in different ways. I love, love working with publicists like Brittany. And she pointed out something that I was aware of, but I hadn't fully appreciated until she wrote it down. This is your ninth book. Yes. But only two years have passed in the world <laughs> of the book since The Anatomist Wife. And I, she, her question was, what led you to keeping this timeline so tight. My question is, are people not starting to not want to invite them because every time they show up, there's a murder or, <laughs> or are they more attractive guests because they can just arrange to have really like annoying family members or people present and be like, well, if we invite Lady Darby and her husband, then someone will <laughs> die and maybe it'll be you. Well, um, <laughs> so I initially, <laughs> I initially set the I kind of let the character set the pace of how um, how far the books were spaced, especially initially, you know, because uh, the very early books, it's really um, Kira and Gage, their romance kind of developing. So it's like you don't want to stretch them out and they're separated for too long. Um, and then after that, it was like sometimes it was an event in history or things like that. Um and I, and I was thinking to myself that I had to be very careful and conscious of a lot of the books. It's not that the death happens when they're there. They're like asked to go there or that there's an issue and they're asked to go check it out. So hopefully they're not always the ones that when they show up, the dead body drops. I mean, at, at some, you know, at some point this has happened so often to them that yeah, their friends have to be thinking, I don't know if I want to invite them <laughs> to my house party, but in another sense, I mean, they are the, you know, the investigators of the upper class. I mean, cause this isn't a time period where the police is really in the infancy. They didn't really investigate. I mean, the police were initially established just to like keep order, you know, and keep bad things from happening. They didn't have detectives. They didn't have that kind of thing. And so, you know, like in London, they had the Bow Street Runners, but the upper class didn't want to cooperate with them. They didn't want them in their business, you know, so they're kind of the people that the upper class are like, okay, something bad happened. I don't want this riffraff in my home, you know, let me call the gauges, you know? Yeah. So in my mind, I was, I was consciously trying to make that balance happen. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, to a certain extent, yeah, they are. So things seem to follow them around <laughs> or they sniff them out anyway. So was it a deliberate choice on your part to compress their narrative timeline? Yes, it was. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, like for, for the romance initially, and then it was, there were certain events in history and there were certain, um, you know, things I wanted them to do before. I, I will say when I first started writing the series um, and the background that I gave Kira, you know, in my mind, I had the London Burkers in mind, which happened in late 1831. And I was like, okay, if, if I'm so blessed that I keep, get to keep writing this series, they have to be there, you right. know, the and resurrectionists. So, correct. Yes. yes. The, yeah, the, you know, we had Burke and Hare in 1828, 29 Edinburgh. And there, that's that shadow that's cast over everything in this time period, especially with Kira and the anatomy and the, you know, the body snatching and all that. Um, and so when they, they emerged in London in late 1831, um, it was like, she's got to be there. She just has to be. And it's such a fascinating historical event anyway, that people don't know about. They all know a lot of people know about Burke and Hare, but they don't know about the London Burkers. And, um, so for me, it was, you know, these certain things have to happen until, you know, before that. And so it was, it really shaped the early arc of the series. And so for me, that's kind of how the spacing came into play, like just making all the things that I needed to fit in, fit in um, the stories that I wanted to shape before that. Um, and so that's why I kind of decided to just compress it and um, not have quite big, quite such big gaps. So I, I love the idea that you have this very, very large calendar, but all of the action happens in like two <laughs> years. It's a very, very tight date book. They're very busy. Their Google calendar is completely filled with murder. <laughs> Very busy people here. <laughs> now, one 
of the things that you mentioned in the introduction. And I try very hard when doing an interview to not include spoilers. So I will not be spoiling anything, but in the, in the introduction um, you mentioned, and if you ever wonder if your introduction and your author's notes are read, they are always read by podcasters, certainly by me. And I love them. They're my favorite part when you get like the sort of behind the scenes convo. You mentioned that ways of addressing contagion and pandemic were very different in this period versus right now. And I, first, I appreciate that it was in your mind, like I'm writing about a pandemic during another pandemic, and obviously that's going to be present in the mind of the reader. Oh, yeah. And that signals some serious research. What did you learn about the cholera pandemic while researching this book? And also, it was in the prior book, it was in A Stroke of Malice, too, sort of this thing that was out there and it hadn't come right. here yet. And what was it like for you writing about and living in two very different, very, very different pandemics? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so when I wrote A Stroke of Malice, it was a year before it even, even happened. Yeah. And so I was writing this book with a conceit <laughs> as it was happening. So of course I had no idea. I mean, that was like, some Did people you, had asked me that and I was like, there's no way I knew. That we were gonna you have play a the lottery pandemic. now? Like, have you thought yeah. about buying some tickets? You I know, seem right? to have some yeah. premonition going I've on I've got here. some luck here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So um, I would have always done research, but the fact that we were going through a pandemic, it made me have to research even more intensely because I knew everybody's so used to what we have to do now that, that I was like, they're never going to believe that this is really what they did in the past, you know? So um, yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, you know, cholera is different, very different yes. from COVID. And, yes. um, but I mean, this is 200 born, years right? ago. Yes. yes. I mean, nowadays, if, there was cholera, you'd boil your water and you'd be fine. You know, yeah. I mean, this is why we have modern sanitation and all these things. But 200 years ago, they didn't know this. They didn't know germ theory wasn't a thing. Everything was miasma theory was the big thing where there was bad air that was coming from corpses and marshes. And like, this is what was making people ill. And, um, you know, they just really did not have a grasp of what was really going on. I mean, um, which makes me think 200 years from now, what are we going to laugh about that we did? You know, oh, yeah. um, are you kidding? But it's yeah. been a year and I laugh at myself a year ago, wiping down oh, my groceries with a, with a wipe, because I was like, I don't know how this is transmitted and I don't know how I'm, so I'm going to wipe yeah. down my Pringles. And I'm going to wipe down well, my bag. I had, I, mean, no, I washed everything. Yeah. I wiped down the boxes. I took everything out. Oh, I, we I unloaded my groceries with gloves on and I look back <laughs> at myself now and I'm like, well, now I know, but I mean, we did Sarah, I get it. You're yeah. trying to keep everybody safe. And who the hell knew how this thing was exactly. spreading? Exactly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, with the cholera, you know, it was, and it was the, this is the first outbreak in the UK. I mean, yeah. it was really, well, and it was really worldwide. I mean, it had been confined, confined basically to the Indian subcontinent before mm -hmm. this. And then with shipping, it just kind of spread and it reaches the UK and it spreads. And I mean, it, it was interesting, you know, several developments that did come of it was this is the first time they had a central board of health, which now we have CDC, World Health Organization, all this stuff, but they didn't have this before then. And so they actually set up, set up a central board of health in London. And then all these other cities had their own, you know, offices and they reported to them so they could get data. And, you know, they didn't really have you know, they didn't understand germ theory at that point, but at least they had statistics about what was going on and where it was spreading and all these kind of things. They put up broadsheets, you know, yeah. everywhere, you know, saying this is what you should do. And they, I mean, they were talking about being clean and yep. eating good food. You know, they understood that, but they just didn't realize it was the water that was contaminated, you yep. know, and, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it wasn't until it was 1854. I thought this was interesting too, that there's a Dr. John Snow. So it's 20 years later. He's the first guy who realizes that, um, that it is the water and he traces it to another outbreak to this, you know, central well, this central pump in London. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is, you know, and it was contaminated by sewer. I mean, that's why, what it was, why it was happening, but, um, it was, this was the pump that like people would travel miles to get water from because they said it tasted the best. That's what's oh. crazy to think. Okay. These mm. people, they're like going to this neighborhood to oh, get the water because they think it's the sweetest water, oh, but I mean, it's actually infected. You know what I mean? It yes. just seems that was, that seemed bizarre to me. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like, uh. Yeah. And, and I will still say, I, I geek out a little bit about the science stuff on this. And if you are interested in it, you know, there is a, there's a podcast called this podcast will kill you. 
And it's, it's great. It's these two ladies that they're like epidemiologists and things, and they talk about different diseases. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, they do the history, they do the, all that kind of stuff. So, um, I would totally, there's a cholera episode on somewhere in their series. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you mentioned also that you wanted to get them to a particular year, that it has been your goal to get them to a particular year. Is there yes. a reason for that that you can talk about? Um, I mean, initially it was the London Burkers. Right. And then Because now... her, her past intersects Correct. so well with that. And then now it's kind of moving them beyond that. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I guess I don't have... I'm not sure where I said that the year thing, but I do have in my mind certain things that I want them to confront mm-hmm. or their side characters to confront. Um, now that we know Anderley's backstory, I'd love to get them to Italy at some point. Yeah. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, um, just so in my mind, I mean, I have like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just work that way. I just, I work with the hope that I'll just keep getting to write. Yep. I understand completely. <laughs> so. Um, you know, cause I've been asked before, do you ever, you know, make an end point or what, what if you don't get a new contract? And I'm like, no, I just write with the hope that I'll just keep going. <laughs> as not. long as I have stories to tell, I think that I'll just, that's just what I'll do. I'll just write like that. And, you know, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One particular part of the book, and this is in the very, very first chapter. So this is not a spoiler is they are walking home and they are accosted by one of the more nebulous characters in the series and Gage is like, could you just stand back? <laughs> She's pregnant and there is cholera. Could you just give us some distance? And I was just yes. like, yes, Gage. Yes. They need the space. Social distancing, social distancing, Gage. Like that one moment, like he could be an absolutely dastardly husband, which he's not. But I was like, yes, I get it. Yes. I'm, I'm connected at this moment with you. It was so reassuring. Did you think about that while you were writing that scene? I did. I did. It really was a balance of what did they do then yes. versus what we do now, Yes, but making it translate to us now. Yes. You know what I mean? Because to me, I'm like, even if they didn't understand germ, th- germ theory, he still would have been thinking, well, I don't know where this guy has been. And like, what bad air is around him? Just stay away from my wife. You know what I mean? It was like yeah. that trying to make that translation in our head. And I knew people today would get it. Like they would totally get it. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 The other aspect of this book that I wanted to ask you about, about specifically about a wicked conceit is the idea of, of narrative. And it's very much a theme in the whole series because even from the beginning, Kira has never been able to control what people say about her. She is not in control about the narrative of her life. And now in this book, again, not spoil, a lot of characters around her are dealing with the idea that that feeling that things are spread about you that you can't control. They're completely far from the truth and no one believes the truth. Is that something you set out to explore in this book or is that sort of something that uh, arrived organically during the writing process? Because it was such an interesting reflection of the thing that has followed Kira the whole series. Right. Yeah. It was, it was kind of half and half. It was conscious, but also kind of more organic. Um, I knew narrative was definitely something in my mind that's been in my mind through this whole series, you know, and the power of it and the impact and even, you know, how it's, how it relates to us today. Um, you know, but it also, I I knew it was time to address that. And when I stumbled, I, I mean, this is based off an event that really happened in history. It was not about Bonnie Brock, but, um, you know, it, it, it happens in 1840, 10 years later, but, or eight years later, but, um, it was just so perfect when I was reading about it to use and it just fit with what I needed to do here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, a big thing for me with, with Kira is like you said, she's never been able to control the narrative about herself, but, and she's come to realize through the series, you know, I can't control this, but I can control what I do. Yes. And I think that's just so powerful. And, and through the series, we see multiple, multiple times people that are, you know, you know, they believe the things about Kira or they're suspicious of her. And then after they meet her and they interact with her and they understand this is not her at all. Yeah. And it changes them. And she has, you know, developed friendships this way and that, that kind of thing. And I think, I, I think that is so powerful. And I think it's something that to this, even now, everybody, yes. you know, we have this, we have this tendency to 
think we know things about people or, or even tell ourselves narratives, you know, like, oh, well, they said this, they must mean this. And we, it's this narrative we tell to ourselves. And it's like, if we would just sit down and talk to them, maybe that's not what they meant at all, especially with our loved ones. I think it's very, very important because I just hear it so often. I mean, and it is just, just compounded with social media, you know, I mean, it's just all of that you can say all these things, but you know, is what's really behind that, you know? And, and we see that we have seen that so much over the last year and month. And it's also so interesting because everyone much like Gage telling Bonnie Brock, y'all need to keep your distance. Everyone can relate to, I know this isn't true about me, but people really seem to think that it is. And then you start beginning to like doubt yourself. Like, gosh, what is, what if, this right. is true? What if I am unnatural? What if I am terrible? And right. everyone can relate to the idea of not being able to control what's said about you, whether you're a public figure or, you know, you're talking about other people you interact with every day in the Absolutely. school pickup line. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a quote by, I can't remember who it is, but it's basically, you know, other people's opinions about me are none of my business. Yes. I have read you that have same to, quote. Yes. Yes. It's perfect. It's so good because it is so true. You have to know yourself and who you are mm-hmm. and the people that you love and you're closest to, they know, they know who yes. you are and they're not going to doubt you. It's those outside spheres that mm-hmm. you just have to, to, and it's hard. It's hard nowadays, especially with social media and stuff and everything, but you have to just shut them off. You have to just, no, I know, I know who I am. I'm not going to let you change that. Yeah. And it's a very powerful motivation for a character, especially one like Lady Darby, who is dealing with the after effects of having been in an abusive marriage that she has physical reactions to Gage who she knows rationally will never hurt her. But right. she's terrified of making him angry and she's terrified of him being angry because there's a um, a book about trauma recovery called The Body Keeps the Score. And her body does that. It keeps the yes. score of her first marriage. It, it, it knows danger and it reacts. She reacts instinctively. And that just makes him even more angry. Yes. And there's a point where she has to like consider, okay, what is this like for him? What is this like for me? Because their narratives about these incidents are so different. Exactly. Yes. And, you know, speaking of of that abuse and that reaction, the reaction and the fact that she's still dealing with it now, that was really important to me to not downplay what people have been through. Mm -hmm. You know, too often I see, oh, well, you know, now she's fine. Five good orgasms and you're good to go. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, that's not how it works, Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, Gage is a great guy and he's the perfect guy for her and they have a good marriage, but she still has these residual things, you know? I mean, and so, and he, he even realizes it makes her, he makes him angry, but he, I'm still, he knows, you know what I mean? Like he knows, but it's still the narrative he's telling himself at that moment. And it's totally it. And then when they can step back and re, you know, address it later, they yes. understand each other. Thinking about what you said about social media. Um, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler that one of the things they're dealing with is a fictional account of yes. another person that includes them. And, you know, right. this, this writer changed one letter of their name. So it's right. Dolby instead of Darby. Like, yeah, woo, that's, wow. That was, I don't know who that is. Gosh, yeah. couldn't figure that out for many pages. But that is sort of like the, the corollary to social media because the play is, yes. in, the play, this play is being, this, this book rather is being turned into a play. Right. On multiple stages, at multiple class levels. And depending right. on the class level, you get a different one. It's very much a form of social media. For it them. is. Yeah. And I, when I was recent, like I said, it was based, it's based on a real murder that happened in London in 1840. Yeah. And it's, so there was a book written by um, uh, William Harrison Ainsworth. It's about Jack Shepard, this, this um, thief that escaped Newgate multiple times. Okay. And it was this form of novels. that was really popular right now that at that time called Newgate novels, and mm-hmm. they were just hugely popular and the book was popular. And then at that time they didn't have to pay um, authors to use their books. All these um, theaters in London put on this play and they were all different and they all had different things. They were all for different class levels, like you were talking about. And it was just this huge cultural thing and the the music even that was in the play like the upper classes were you know it was a thieves can't song like they had no idea what they were singing about and they were still their kids playing the violin with this tune and i mean (laughs) the bells there was a cathedral in edinburgh that the they were they had a 
uh, the bells were playing the song. I mean, it was nuts. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, then there was this murder that happened and the, the man who was accused of it said that he had seen the play and it became this whole thing. And, it, and like, there was a crime spree that was inspired by it. And it was like, it was the whole, I kept thinking of the video game thing when we were in the eighties. Oh, video games are going to make yes. our kids violent. And so it was the same thing. Oh, this play, these books are going to make our people people violent violent, and they're going to make them steal and they're going to make them kill their, you know, employers. And so, yes, it was, it was reading that I was like, I have to use this. I have to. And it so fit that the narrative thing and the, it is, it was like a form of social media. I mean, the, the play, especially because that's what people did. They went to Mm -hmm. see these plays and they would go multiple times and especially the cheaper theaters, you know, yeah, and they the, would just stage them and, you know, days, several a day sometimes, or these penny theaters that would pop yes. up, you know? Yes. That's incredible. It's so interesting when you do research, isn't it? That everything that is, everything that we think is new is just a, a reimagining of something that has already existed Absolutely. several times over. Absolutely. <laughs> Zooming way, way, way out to look at the series yes. as the whole, do you remember what inspired the character of Lady Darby, what led you to create her character? Was she the starting point for the series? She was. Um, when I think about my earliest um, writing of writing that book, um, I was actually working on something else at the time. I have multiple books that, you know, I was trying to get published for a while um, that didn't ever get published. And I was trying to finish one. And like, she just kind of started talking to me in my head. You know, it's your subconscious. And she just started talking to me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself, and she wouldn't go away. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just set this thing aside. And I'm going to let myself have like a week to just kind of play. And the first like couple chapters were just her talking to me, like just telling me. And I stopped and I finished the other book. And then when I came back to it, I was like, okay, I I need to figure out who she is. And that's when I really like, rather than just letting her talk was like, okay, why is she like this? Where does she come from? And, and I started really shaping her backstory and who she was. And, you know, that's kind of how she started. I just knew there was a spark about it. Like, I was like, oh, this is good. I know this is good. Like, I don't know how to describe why you would know something is better than another within yourself, but you just do. Yeah, I mean, some just, things just yeah. resonate. Yes. It just resonated and it was, it was right on. I yep. mean, <laughs> and so. I call it the, uh, the crock pot in the back of my brain. Something that I'm not thinking about. It'll be like, presto, yes. you're done. Like, oh, well, thanks brain. That was really good work. I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I get asked a lot, you know, do I confuse my heroines? But I'm like, for me, it's like they live in different areas of my imagination. Oh, for sure. And so when I'm writing one character, I just have to tap into that that area. It's I, I know that sounds odd, but and it's also the language because I write in different time periods. And so if you know Kira starts talking and she comes out with 1920 slang, I know it's not the right voice. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 so for me, it's never been tricky to 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 confuse. I don't confuse them. They're always so separate. So you ever thought about writing a sort of paranormal novella crossover where they talk to each other? <laughs> that would be fun. Would that, oh be fun? that would be fun. <laughs> like we're reaching through time to solve this. Yes. Problem. Oh my goodness. I, think, I do get I asked, think, are they related? And I'm like, maybe, you know, <laughs> I think Verity and Kira would get on so very well. I do too. I do too. It'd be yeah. like two and a half hours of them going, and <laughs> men, can we talk about men for a minute? What is with men? I swear. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Speaking of men, what about Gage? Mm-hmm. What 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 led you into him? Do you remember, or was he, did he sort of evolve? Because he functions in the very early series as like a foil for Kira right. in a lot of ways, and then he becomes right. his own person, and she is just fascinated with him. Do you remember what led you into his character? Yeah. So initially, so Kira to me was always very awkward socially. She's just not the person who's the social butterfly that in that era would have flourished, you know, as mm-hmm. a, as a gentlewoman, you know, um, she's awkward and just, you know, this is not her, you know, place. This is not her, where she, where yeah. she excels. So I wanted the hero. I deliberately wanted the hero to be the opposite, to be that charming, attractive, you know, he can fit in anywhere. And yep. so the genesis of him came from that. And then, I, I, and this is probably, probably, 
foolish that I did it this way, but it worked great. I did not plan out a lot of who he was because I wanted him. Kira is it's all in Kira's, you know, first person. So I wanted him to be a mystery and I kind of wanted him to be a mystery to me. I didn't really want to know. I knew point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to know, especially in the first book um, and or two, you know, I, I knew he worked with his father and I knew that certain things, but I didn't really want to know too much. I wanted it to be a mystery. I wanted it to un- unveil like it does to Kira. Um, and, and like I said, that might've been really risky to do because, you know, you might've put something in and later been like, oh shoot, I wish I hadn't done that. But I, I think I tried to keep it so vague that I could go anywhere. That makes sense. I mean, like, I feel like you still get a really good sense of him, but mm-hmm. you also, it's also very vague about where he's coming from. And a lot of it's her thinking, why is he doing this? You know? And he, so a lot of his, in the first book is very much his actions, you know, like that he, when she vomits, he kneels with her to help her. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, you know, that tells you a lot about him just yeah. in one simple act. You know what I mean? Like and he listens to her. Correct. Yes. So I, I, for me, he was a man of action in those first several books. And then we really get to see, and it fits his character because he very much does not share who he is. He very much has this persona. And unless you are close to him, he's not going to let you know who he truly is. And so it just, it ended up working beautifully. Yes. How, how I ended up doing it. So (laughs) Lucky me. <laughs> and and, and it, it, it's, it's an interesting fit for Lady Darby because she's not necessarily going to trust somebody who isn't honest about who they are because she has been down that road and it ended right. very badly for her. And she's right. not going to be really excited to deal with someone who's not that forthcoming. And yet she has that instinct of, but he, he listens to me. He may not like that I'm right. <laughs> and I'm often right. But he listens. And he clearly right. demonstrates without he, he demonstrates that he cares in the early books without really meaning to. Right. Uh, and I think that goes along with the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. She's recognized you can't trust necessarily what people say and yeah. what people say about people. Yeah. But I can I have an instinct and I can trust when I see someone mm-hmm. acting they're not doing it in front of people. They're doing it instinctively. This is how they really are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that glimpse in those of quiet their moments, yeah. you know? And so it's her, it's her reasserting that she does have good stink, sh- instincts. She does can understand who someone is and how someone is. And, you know, and, and that trust in herself again. Mm-hmm. So, which was eroded by her first marriage. Correct. Yes. A lot of the series is also her gaining back trust in her own instincts and her yes. own sense and senses of how she experiences the world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this question comes from Angela James, who want, who loves these series and wanted to know. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier. Do the Verity Kent series? And the Lady Darby series, do they have a planned series arc? Do you have a sense of where you'd like them to end up? Um, Or are you sort of, I am here now with these characters and I will continue to enjoy them where they are? Um, At this point with Lady Darby, I have like four books ahead in my mind, Mm -hmm. like, but then it's kind of open-ended. I don't really plan out that. Mm -hmm. Um, And with Verity, it's very very similar. I know where she's headed. and she has her arch nemesis in Lord Ardmore that we've got that whole arc that's got to develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it's, yeah, it's really open-ended. I, I, I live in optimism, I guess. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I love that I get to, to bounce back and forth between the series. So they're fresh and I never get tired of them. And I always say to myself, if I'm getting tired of the characters and if I'm not challenging myself anymore, that's when I know that I need to wrap the series up because it just, it's probably time, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not there yet. But I'm that not hasn't there happened yet. yet. So. <laughs> Good to know. So are you currently working on a Verity book? What are you working on right now? So I'm working on Lady Darby 10, um, which is out next year. It's fun to talk about a book that you already wrote that you're writing the next uh, one and you have to be like, Wait, know, which, right? one, which book am I talking about right now? <laughs> I know. I know. I, I actually had to get a whiteboard <laughs> because I was mixing things up. And so I could just look at it and be like, this is what I've happens got, like, in this column book. for each book, yep. you know, like of what I need to do and like what's going on. And oh my goodness. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so I'm working on book 10. Um, and, you know, then I'll be working on the next Verity. Um, book five comes out later this year and I'll be working on book six. Um, I have I recently posted about this on social media that I had this idea just like come to me like two weeks ago. Um, that I would really like to have the time to explore. So, I mean, I'd love to maybe do another new project. I think it's great every once in a while to have something new and mm-hmm. that's that you've never worked with because it really keeps you fresh. Yeah. And it, I'm just excited about it. I can't really say a lot yet because it's still germinating. Yep. But, um, but yeah, I would love to have something new. I also... So, uh, my Gothic Myth series, book one is out. It's been out for a while. Um, and readers have itself published... Um, Readers have been asking for the second book and it's almost done. And I really hoped to finish it earlier this year because I'm, I'm grateful that people are asking for it. Um, but I just, I, after last year, you know, pushing through everything, I got to like January and I just crashed and I just, it's a lot, right? It was a lot. And I just needed that time to just, you know, mentally and everything else Mm -hmm. just, and so I did not get it done, but I'm hoping it will eventually be done. (laughs) it is almost done. That's what's crazy. I'm like, keep going, finish it, you know, but you got to honor your contracts first. So, um, so hopefully that will be out later this year or next year, depending on timing and all that stuff. Um, which that's been fun. That series has been Regency set and it's been exploring like the local myths and like, are they, you know, which have twists of like ghost stories or, you know, fairies or those kind of things. And so is it true? Is it not true? What's going on? And they have different heroines so it's almost more of a romance format mm-hmm. um where it's like the friend of the heroine of the previous book you know so um it's been a lot of fun to to do that it's just kind of something kind of a refresh so i can i can already imagine the people who will be listening saying what's the name of the book what's the name of the book so uh, what's <laughs> what's the name of the book so you should say of uh, the gothic one yeah yeah so i haven't named the second one yet. <laughs> i've been trying to decide it's something with netherwood hall because that's the um and the first one is called the manor. The first one is called Secrets in the Mist. I'm sorry. Yes. yes. Okay. Because I will so. I will hear about it. People like talked about a book with ghosts and fairies. Which one was that? And it'll be like two months afterward, and I'll be like, I don't remember a lot of books in my brain. So thank you. <laughs> yes, Secrets in the Mist is the first one. Yeah. So yeah, it's set in Norfolk. So yeah. <laughs> and gothics are definitely experiencing a resurgence. Oh yes. And I love them. I oh, love yeah. them. Yeah. Speaking of um, not being able to trust your own instincts, <laughs> major theme in those too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love them. And you know, they're my jam. I mean, Mary Stewart, Victoria Holt, that kind of stuff. Oh, good stuff. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I did an interview recently with um, Rose Lerner who wrote a mm. FF retelling of Jane Eyre. Yes. Very gothic, um, gothic setting as well. And she mentioned that historically gothics have become popular after moments of great social upheaval and change, which of course we are experiencing right now, especially as social change affecting the rights and and, um, abilities of women to live their own lives. And I was like, well, I I guess it's uh, now is the time. (laughs) Right. That'll work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what books are you reading right now that you would like to tell people about? I've been doing a lot of research for Lady Derby 10 um, and some fun one. One fun one that I read recently, it's it's called Punch. It's by David Wondrich. And it's actually about like the alcoholic beverage pump punch. This is what people drank before cocktails. You know what I mean? They made the big bowl of flowing, the flowing bowl, you know? And he has a lot of really fun anecdotes, social anecdotes, just stories about things that happened in the past and, there's one, I can't remember the date, but the the British uh, Navy was like in Spain and the Admiral decided to host this party and they filled the fountain with punch. It was that much. I mean, they had a boy wow. that was rowing around in a little boat to fill people's punch cups. I mean, and it's like, this is recorded by several different people. So they think it's really happened, you know, just, just lots of fun stuff in this book other than, and also punch recipes. So obviously, um, yeah, <laughs> so that's that, that. Um, and I've been reading a lot about um, like art um, forgery and stuff, which kind of a hint about what the lady, next Lady Derby book will be about. Um, and I can um, recommend The Forger Spell by Edward Dolnick. That mm-hmm. was really fascinating. It talks about the Vermeer. And the last Vermeer, I think maybe the new the new movie that's coming out, I just realized it may be kind of the same um, 
you know, it's about the man who forged Vermeer's and that the, some of the Nazis bought and all these kind of things. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, and then it's, it's funny. Um, I've been going through my to be read pile and I've been, I, I, I was posting about this on social media and a lot of people chimed in. I missed Liz Carlisle. I realized I had a couple of her books that I had not read. So I just love her. I think she's great. And then a mystery I recently read is called the unquiet dead. Um, and it's called, it's by Ozma. I'm going to say this wrong. I bet Ozma Zahanet Khan. She's from Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just really interesting. It was something, a departure for me, but super, uh, fascinating. It's more of a contemporary set. Um, and one of the detectives is a Muslim and it's just, it was a different feel. So I, awesome. I liked it. I have a book that I wanted to make sure to mention to you, and I'm going to be pretty surprised if you haven't heard of it. Have you read Dark Archives? by Megan Rosenblum. It is a nonfiction about a a medical librarian who is researching books that are bound in human skin. Oh my gosh. I have not heard of this. Okay. I'm reading it right now. It is so fascinating. So she starts off at the, I think it's the Muter Museum in Philadelphia, where they have books that are proven to have been bound in human skin. And she takes a very methodical deep dive into research and how you test and how you verify that something is human skin and why is someone saying this book is bound in human skin. And it's super, super macabre. Like it is straight up Lady Darby Street. Oh, I'm totally looking up that up. Oh my goodness. It's so good because... She also writes about her own reaction. Like, why is this book being said that it was bound in human skin when it wasn't? It was obviously, if it's rare and it's creepy, it's going to be worth more money. But then right. if you do find a book that's bound in human skin, Ooh. why the hell would you do that? And what about oh. the person? What about the person whose skin you use? And you will be utterly shocked to know. Oh my gosh! That it was wealthy doctors who had lots of just lots of bodies because there was cholera and there's lots of bodies. So they would oh just be gosh. like, "Oh, no one's using this. I'll just take this piece of skin. No big I, deal." I knew that they had made like there's a book bound in Burke's um, skin. Yes, in the Surgeons Hall Museum in in Edinburgh. I knew about that, and I so I figured that there was probably other ones like that of. Yeah. Famous criminals that were murdered or were executed and things like that. But that's crazy that there's some hidden in archives. And I mean, oh my oh, gosh, yeah. that's wow. Okay, yeah, I'm looking this up. <laughs> it's so good. I'm reading it right now. And it's very strange when this happens to me, but I absolutely love it. So I'm reading Lady Darby to prepare for this interview. And then I'm reading this nonfiction about human skin. And I'm like, I, th- these, these two go together in a creepy way. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, yes. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I will have links where you can find all of the books in the Lady Darby series, including Wicked Conceit, in the show notes. And thank you to Brittany Black and Angela James for the questions this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Ritual, a vegan-friendly multivitamin delivered to your door that's formulated with high-quality nutrients and bioavailable forms your body can actually use. I like knowing what's in my vitamins, and I like knowing what is not in my vitamins. Ritual does not contain sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, or artificial colorants. I also like knowing the supply chain of each ingredient, which is something I had not thought much about but appreciate knowing, and I like how some of the ingredients were developed to be vegan-friendly. I also like that it doesn't make me feel nauseated, and as soon as I finish a bottle, a new one arrives. I can start snooze and cancel my subscription at any time. Now available for women, men, and teens, Ritual Multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages. Get key ingredients without the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Sarah to start your ritual today. I want to say thank you to everyone who has left a review for the show wherever you're listening. Thank you so much. You are helping new folks find the show. And you're also making my whole entire week. Red August wrote, I have but immersive love for this podcast. I'm currently driving about four hours a day and SPTB gets me through. Thank you. I am honored to keep you company while you do all of the things you do. You are doing fabulous. Thank you for leaving reviews to help other people discover the show. I will have links to everything we talked about, Never Fear, all of the books we talked about, and some of the podcast episodes we referenced as well, including This Podcast Will Kill You, because I'm totally going to listen to that, no question. 
But as always, I end each episode with a terrible joke, and this is a terrible joke inspired by Wilbur, who has insisted while I'm trying to record that he needs to jump to every loud location in this room. And this is not a big room. I don't know what his problem is. He's just a precious, loud, adorable orange ball of sunshine. So here is this week's joke. Are you ready? Why do so many creative people have cats? Good question. Why do so many creative people have cats? They are hoping to find their muse. (coughs) Muse. Yeah, he totally looked at me when I did that, too. That joke was from Alana. Thank you, Alana. I really appreciate that one. I love bad jokes. I love cat jokes. I love bad jokes about cats. So if you want to send me one, sbjpodcast at gmail.com. And I also promised that I wanted to share my favorite quote from the book. And, you know, this is super indulgent, but I'm going to share it with you anyway because I really, really, really like this book and I like this part. This is uh, Lady Darby getting very frustrated because everywhere they go, people get murdered and then they have to investigate and people are annoyed about it. We spent so much time in the pursuit of truth and justice, and yet all it seemed to do was reveal how dubious and unjust the world truly was. I really like series like this one with Lady Darby and Gage because the restoration of order is deeply soothing, especially amid so many historical parallels. So if you read this book, I hope you'll let me know what you think of it. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 201-371-3272. But if you like this series as much as I do, I'd love to hear from you. I love talking about books. I don't know if you've noticed that that's a thing I do. But on behalf of everyone here, especially Wilbur, the gravity-defying cat, Actually, he wouldn't make so noise, so much noise if he was defying gravity. Isn't that right, buddy? We wish you the very best of reading. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you back here next week. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.